When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move. And here's your need to know. Sanctions swap, Chinese stocks fall as tensions with the U.S. and its allies rise. Data debate, U.S. regulators raise new questions over AstraZeneca's vaccine data and travel turnaround. Etihad CEO says demand will soar when lockdowns ease. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First News once again. It's good to be with you as always. It's a day where America is once again in mourning. Following another senseless mass shooting, the seventh mass shooting, in fact, in seven days. This time in Colorado, and our hearts and prayers are with all those affected by this tragedy. We will take you there live for the latest later in the show. For now, it's also a day where more than 450 million vaccine doses have been administered worldwide, critical, of course, to that vaccine effort, the AstraZeneca version. And U.S. health officials are querying some of the U.S. trial data. Sanjay Gupta will join us live to give his take coming up on the show. We'll also be speaking to the head of the African CDC to get their view on the efficacy and safety of this drug, pivotal, of course, to the continent. And as always, we balance vaccine with the virus, policy with the politics, and there's certainly something for everyone today. Wall Street, as you can see, softer, with tech taking back a little of Monday's 1% gains. In fact, we've flipped in the last few moments, so we're higher by two-tenths of 1%, aided, I think, by bond yields pulling back slightly too. Investors are going to be watching for any bond market concern from Fed Chair Jay Powell and Treasury Secretary Yellen later when they testify before Congress, especially given sources telling CNN that the Biden administration is readying a massive $3 trillion infrastructure and social spending proposal. More spending equals more borrowing, of course, and that means higher yields too. In the meantime, pandemic caution pervades Europe. Germany formally extending lockdown measures until mid-April. The UK is set to extend its overseas travel ban until the end of June as well. And we've got red arrows in Asia as well as the US and its allies announce historic coordinated sanctions on Chinese officials for alleged human rights abuses. China hitting back with sanctions of its own. And that is where we're going to bring and begin the drivers. Will Ripley joins us live from Hong Kong. Will, great to have you with us. It certainly felt very orchestrated. Just lay out for us who actually took specific action and who stood back but supported those measures. The sanctions are certainly the most tangible aspect of this in terms of real financial damage for the individuals who've been named, top officials tied to Xinjiang, the province in China, which is home to the Uyghur Muslims and other ethnic minorities that have been subject to brutal human rights abuses, according to the United States and its European allies, its North American allies and its allies here in Asia Pacific. Uh, And what we saw, in addition to the sanctions, was a carefully orchestrated series of statements, condemnation, 
the, the West and, 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 and instead of standing up to Beijing one-on-one -on -one as they have in the past, trying to take a different approach, trying to stand together as one voice to criticize the internment camps, the forced sterilization, the restrictions on religious freedoms. And in fact, the United States has called it genocide, saying that China has essentially tried to erase an entire Muslim culture in Xinjiang, even though China, Julia, as we pointed out on this program, points to things like the GDP and the life expectancy going up and says that human rights in Xinjiang are great and they think that the West is meddling in its internal affairs. That's been China's consistent line. The question now, can they really ignore this? Can they ignore this kind of concerted and coordinated effort? What we're seeing, at least at this early stage, Julia, is not a willingness on the part of Beijing to open up a dialogue, but a tit-for-tat response, a slew of sanctions against the European Union officials and entities, and uh, you know more basic denials of any human rights issue in Xinjiang and basically telling the Western world that it's none of their business anyway. I mean, this is the question, isn't it? And I think you raised the perfect point. This feels more symbolic. Obviously, these nations have taken action with these sanctions, so at least it's tangible. But there will be people looking at this saying, look, the United States, as you pointed out, is calling this genocide. Do these measures go far enough? Well, if you compare to what was happening during the, the years of the Trump administration, where there was this, the State Department was condemning what was happening in Xinjiang as President Trump was publicly praising Chinese President Xi Jinping, who Chinese internal documents show was a driving force behind the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims and the ethnic minorities in Xinjiang. And so obviously all of these countries are doing a delicate dance because China is probably the number one trading partner with most of them, either China or the United States here, but they are taking a more principled stand and, 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 and standing up to Beijing in a way that we haven't truly seen before. Will it be enough? Well, we've seen the early response from, from Beijing, which seems to indicate that at least on their side of the of the line here, it's still going to be business as usual, at least for now. But but can they lose this much face? Can they can they alienate Western countries to this extent? Or, or will there be more tangible consequences moving forward? Will these countries, is this just a first step? But it's the beginning of a more coordinated stance from the international community directed towards China. And I think this is the key, Will, to your point. Thank you so much for your context on that story. Will Ripley there. To AstraZeneca now, standing by the results of its U.S. clinical trial after a U.S. review board warned that some of the information may be outdated. The company says it plans to clarify with the board immediately. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. Sanjay, great to have you on the show and to get your context. What do you make of this first? What was it, do you think, that was concerning the U.S. officials? And how normal is it for this to play out in public? Yeah, well, I mean, the second question first, uh, this is, that's the unusual part is that this, this has been playing out in public like this. I mean, it's not that unusual for uh, these independent monitoring boards to go back to the pharmaceutical company and say, hey, you know, your data is not quite making sense. Uh, can you please review it, uh, do, a, do another analysis, whatever. But the fact that the National Institutes of Health here in the United States put this out on their website, I thought was, uh, was a, you know, a, a more significant statement saying, hey, we have a significant problem with AstraZeneca's data so far. It doesn't mean that there, there necessarily will be a long-term problem. It basically means that the, the data that they've put forth, as you said, was either incomplete or, or outdated. I want to explain that, but listen to what Dr. Fauci, how he sort of described this. It really is unfortunate that this happened. You know, this is really what you call an unforced error, because the fact is 
this is very likely a very good vaccine. And this kind of thing does, as you say, do nothing but really cast some doubt uh, about the vaccines and maybe contribute to the hesitancy. It was not necessary. If you look at it, the data really are quite good. But when they put it into the press release, it wasn't completely accurate. So one thing I'll, I'll sort of point out, Julia, just to give you an idea of the numbers here, is that when we looked at the Pfizer vaccine, for example, how do they determine that something is 95% effective? Well, in that case, out of all the people in the trial, 162 people became sick in the placebo group during the trial, and eight people became vac- uh, sick in the, in the vaccinated trial. So that gives you an idea of just how, how different the numbers were. That's a 95%. Moderna, smaller numbers, but a similar sort of ratio. Of all the people who got sick, 90 of them were in the placebo group, five were in the vaccine group. What we've heard for the U.S. data from AstraZeneca thus far is that there were five people who got sick and they were all in the placebo group. It's a very small number. This may be part of the incomplete, uh, outdated data that they're talking about here, Julia. We don't know, but AstraZeneca has has promised to resolve this within the next 48 hours. I mean, it's tough to back out their efficacy ratio from those numbers when you're talking about five people getting sick to zero. So I guess this is what's causing some of the confusion as well. I mean, Sanjay, this, this vaccine from AstraZeneca, it's not important in the United States because they've got Pfizer, they've got Moderna, J&J's coming as well. But for emerging markets, for the continent of Africa, for example, this is a pivotal, vital drug. And these kind of, as uh, Dr. Fauci called it, unforced errors are a problem where confidence is concerned. Yeah, I, I totally agree, you know, Julia. It would be naive to suggest that even if you know, uh, this, whole, this whole situation that we're talking about here gets resolved, there hasn't been some taint on the overall mm. confidence in this vaccine. And that's unfortunate because there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy around the world. And when we look at COVAX, which is, uh, you know, designed to really provide access to vaccines for low and middle income countries, um, AstraZeneca is a big part of that. I think close to 20% of COVAX's vaccines were supposed to come from AstraZeneca. Again, I, I don't want to suggest that there will be a longer term problem here. But what people have heard about the vaccine trial from AstraZeneca, it was paused in the United States and in the UK for some time. There was this question about clotting, which subsequently was found to have no association with the vaccine. And now this question about data. That's the sort of information that people are hearing here in the United States and around the world. So they need to resolve this and they need to be definitive about this. As you point out, five people becoming ill in the placebo group versus none in the vaccinated group. I don't think you need to be a statistics major to sort of figure out that doesn't seem to to be a statistically significant. How do you get to the point where you can actually give people that confidence? I think they can possibly, as Dr. Fauci said, he still believes this is a good vaccine. But this is critically important for the world. Yeah, it's critically important. Confidence, critically important. Sanjay, you mentioned the blood clotting concerns that have now had a line drawn beneath them. Can I just get your sense when we're vaccinating this many people, when you see occurrences of something like blood clots, and obviously AstraZeneca came out and said, look, the occurrences were actually less than would ordinarily happen in a population, vaccine aside. How confident are we just to set that issue specifically aside? Can we get your wisdom on that too, please? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that th- this is this is uh, one of those situations where, in the midst of a significant vaccine rollout, every everyone's antenna is really raised to try and find any kind of uh, potential side effect. And and th- you know, frankly, I think that may be a good thing. I mean, we want to find any kind of safety concerns early on. But as a result of that, you end up finding things that oftentimes have no relationship to the vaccine itself. Within a population of people, uh, a large population, there are sorts of different medical problems that just emerge, even if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, even if there wasn't a vaccine rollout. And one of them is spontaneous clotting problems. So there's sort of what they call a baseline rate of some of these things. And just as you correctly pointed out, the baseline rate for clotting problems was either close to or even a little bit lower among the vaccinated group than the background population. It's to say that these clotting problems would, would have been happening otherwise. Now, that's the final sort of um, you know, assessment of the European Medic- Medicine Association and the World Health Organization. So I think that that's really a red herring. But, you know, Julia, the thing is that, you know, people hear, okay, well, I got Pfizer, I got Moderna, there's J&J. AstraZeneca sounds like there's been too much, too many sort of questionable things that I've heard about it. Not that they're of merit, but I think that when we look into the psyche of how people make decisions, it definitely does play a role. Yeah, it does. Sanjay, great to get your perspective, though, and uh, your wisdom on this. Thank you for your time, as always. Thank you. Sanjay Gupta there. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. America, as I mentioned, in mourning once again after another mass shooting. Ten people lost their lives after a gunman opened fire inside a Colorado grocery store on Monday. The victims include a police officer who had seven children. This is America's seventh mass shooting in just the past week. A suspect is in custody, but still no word on a motive, as CNN's Dan Simon reports. Ten people are dead after a gunman opened fire inside this Boulder, Colorado supermarket Monday. Oh my God. Guys, we got people down inside King Supers. Look, there's. Witnesses recall hearing several loud bangs before customers frantically ran for the exits. This feels like the safest spot in America. And I just nearly got killed for getting a, 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 a soda, you know, and a bag of chips. Police quickly arrived at the scene. The shooter was still inside the store firing a rifle. 136, still multiple shots being fired at us. Start pushing slow, but we do not know where he is. He hit on with a rifle. Our officers shot back and returned fire. They're just like bang, 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 and I immediately sprinted over to her and was like, hey, we gotta get out of here and like pushed open the emergency door and I like told her to, to run. Law enforcement immediately worked to secure the building. This is the Boulder Police Department. The entire building is surrounded. I need you to surrender now. Eventually ramming into the building and forcing their way in. My son-in-law walked into the pharmacy for him to get a COVID-19 shot. And the shooter came in, shot the woman in front of them. They hid, ran upstairs or hiding in a coat closet for the last hour. Half a dozen cops came in through the roof, got him, and then told them, you know, stay quiet. And they, they're okay. Uh, just, this is not okay with me. And this is a, put in a big pitch for gun control. And, and you know, this is, you know, when it's your family. 51-year-old Boulder police officer Eric Talley was among the victims. Officer Talley responded to the scene, was the first on the scene, and he was fatally shot. 
The suspect was wounded and is currently in police custody. The district attorney vows justice will be served for the nine victims and Officer Talley. And his life was cut far too short as he responded to the shooting that was taking place at King Supers. These were people going about their day, doing their food shopping, and their lives were cut abruptly and tragically short by the shooter, who is now in custody. I promise the victims and the people of the state of Colorado that we will secure justice and do everything we must do to get justice in this case. And Dan Simon joins us now live from Boulder, Colorado. Dan, good to have you with us. Um, what are people saying to you, Dan, and what have they said to you since the tragic events? Because the additional heartbreak and tragedy of this is that people in Colorado, no stranger to this kind of senseless, devastating tragedy. Well, hi, Julia. Just so much shock and sadness, and I think people are still coming to grips with what took place yesterday. You know, there have been several mass shootings over the years in Colorado. You have Columbine, Aurora, and now you have Boulder, and people are just processing that there's been another mass shooting again in the state of Colorado. Now, I can tell you that police just uh, removed the, the crime scene tape behind me, so you are uh, seeing traffic here once again, but uh, all of this area uh, where this grocery store is still uh, largely roped off. Now, a lot of questions, of course, today, Julia, uh, mainly what caused the shooter to, to go inside that grocery store and start uh, shooting at people seemingly at random. At this point, police have not disclosed the name of the suspect and they haven't talked about any uh, operating theories as to why he did what he did. We do know that a news conference is scheduled uh, uh, later this morning here in Boulder where we hope to learn more information about the suspect and the victims. Julia. Yeah, hearts with everybody there, Dan. Thank you for joining us. Dan Simon in Colorado there. All right, voting is underway in Israel's fourth election in just two years. There are 120 seats up for grabs with the magic number being 61. Early polling puts Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on top, but there's no guarantee he'll be able to form a majority government. All right, so to come here on First Move, the head of Africa's CDC discusses the continent's vaccine rollout and AstraZeneca's pivotal role. Stay with us. That's coming up. Welcome back to First Move Live from New York, where U.S. stocks set for a mixed open ahead of today's congressional terror, terror testimony. Get the word out by Fed Chair Jay Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on the future of pandemic aid. Caution, too, as Europe extends emergency health measures that could further weigh on economies as levels of COVID infections there remain highly elevated. Companies in the news today include Microsoft. It's trading a relatively unchanged pre-market amid reports that it's set to make a $10 billion bid for privately held Discord, an online chat platform popular with gamers, a move that could raise antitrust concerns given Microsoft's Xbox ubiquity. All right, let's move on. Thousands more evacuations could soon be ordered in Australia's New South Wales, which has faced days of historic life-threatening rain and flooding. The state's premier calls the situation catastrophic and the dangerous weather system is not done yet. CNN's Linda Kankada reports. Locals try to rescue a horse and save themselves as floodwaters rise in southeast Australia. Weather conditions are being described as historic as torrential rain and widespread flooding batter the region. More than 18,000 people have been evacuated from their homes in New South Wales, 
Rescue crews search for those stuck amid the rising water. Residents say they've never seen anything this bad. Look, the, the river, I've never seen rubbish. Like, you get a lot of rubbish, it was going part, like, when you live on the river, they'll go as fast as what the ski boats go and some of the race boats. It was, I've never seen it. And as soon as it broke the banks, it was like a torrent. About 20 dogs were rescued from floodwaters in Sydney after the owners had to leave them behind while they escaped to safety. It's being called a once-in-a-100-year flooding event. CNN weather experts say it's part of a La Nina pattern. Satellite images show the weather that unleashed heavy rain Monday. Parts of New South Wales receiving about half a year's worth of rain in just 96 hours causing several dams to either reach capacity or come very close to it. Australia's government declared a natural disaster for the state. I've been a flood forecaster in the Bureau for 20 years and this is probably the worst flooding that I've experienced and I've had to forecast. Unfortunately, the horse didn't make it. Many livestock have either died or are left stranded as the floods have cut off owners from their animals. Just a year ago, Australia was in the midst of a bushfire disaster. Now a record-breaking flood emergency devastates parts of the country and some areas could see a metre of rainfall when it's all over. Linda Kincaid, CNN. AstraZeneca's vaccine facing fresh challenges in the United States, as we've discussed this morning, even as it works to undo damage done by the stop-start rollout in Europe. Bad news for AstraZeneca, worrying news for Africa. The continent is struggling to secure vaccines and is reliant on the COVAX scheme, 87% of which is supplied by AstraZeneca. In the wake of suspensions in Europe, the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention set up a task force to review its safety. Joining us now is John Nkangasong. He's director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. John, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Just give us your sense. Thank you for having me. Just give us your sense, please, of the AstraZeneca vaccine. So, uh, first of all, the AstraZeneca vaccine is very safe. I think that is, uh, has been proven over and over. And second is that at least 30 countries on the continent have started using the vaccine. We at Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as you indicated, met last week, reviewed all the evidence and data and issued a statement that clearly states that the continent should continue to use the vaccine, especially in areas that are not challenged yet with a variant that is the so-called South African variant. So as we speak, we ourselves have started distributing uh, through the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team several doses of vaccines across several countries in Africa. And just to be clear, this task force that reviewed, that reviewed all the data for, for AstraZeneca's vaccine includes experts not only from Africa, but from around the world. And you do have a reporting and evaluation process that's ongoing uh, just in case there are adverse effects. Um, effects of people taking this vaccine. So you're constantly monitoring. We're constantly monitoring that. Let me just say also that the task force included last week about 260 people across the continent as well as uh, from Europe, including the European Medicine Agency, that we review systematically every evidence that can could or possibly point to that direction of any adverse effects on the AstraZeneca vaccine. And we concluded that uh, the vaccine was a, a very safe. I mean, let me put it this way. COVID has killed about 2.6 
million people in the world and no vaccine. And I repeat, no vaccine has killed anybody. So I think we should continue to uh, rely on the public health agencies like the World Health Organization, Africa CDC, for recommendation and guidance on uh, the appropriate use of these vaccines. So the message from uh, the African CDC is it is safe and we're carrying on distributing it and vaccinating people as fast as we can. Absolutely. We are uh, that the AstraZeneca vaccine represents the backbone for now for our vaccination efforts on the continent. And uh, we are monitoring that closely, as we do for all vaccines. Uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccines will be coming down the pipeline. But as we speak, we have a system in place that is tracking everyone who is uh, receiving the vaccine in the spirit of surveillance, that is monitoring people that have received the vaccines and documenting any uh, potential side effects. And the continent has a huge job. You want to achieve vaccinating 60% of the continent over the next two years. That involves vaccinating 750 million people. 20% of your vaccines, as I mentioned in the introduction, coming from COVAX. How and what are you doing about acquiring the remaining vaccines that are needed? So thank you for that very important question. When we started earlier on last year, we presented a strategy to the Bureau of the Head of States chaired at that time by uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa of the African Union. And we agreed that at least 60% of the continent should be vaccinated in order to create what we call the community immunity or herd immunity. Uh, the United States is aiming at more than that, about 80, 80%. Europe is aiming at a little bit uh, 80% or 70%. China plans to vaccinate about 80% of its population by September. So I think uh, the, the 60% or at least 60% threshold is very reasonable. And it is a threshold that we believe uh, should enable us to get rid of COVID if we really uh, uh, want to win the battle against this pandemic. Now, COVAX is, uh, has assured us that they will supply us with at least 20% uh, of the, 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 the vaccines. That percentage might increase to 30%. So now we have a short a gap of about 30%. And that is where we uh, created the African Vaccine Task Team, which is striving to complete that gap. And we are calling for a partnership with Friends of Africa to rally around this uh, very important strategic direction for the continent uh, given to us by our head of state to achieve that 60% threshold, which uh, we believe that must be achieved in order to win the battle against the COVID-19. But without more help, it's going to take far longer than two years. And that's, that's the reality. That's the reality. But if we truly, from the, the perspective of health security, economic security of the continent, we must strive to uh, vaccinate at least 60% of our people by uh, 2022. That is absolutely not that. Otherwise, we risk moving into an endemic situation where this virus will just seed itself into the community and we begin to deal with it as we are we're currently tackling HIV, AIDS, uh, tuberculosis and malaria. It is in no one's interest uh, for uh, COVID-19 to become endemic in Africa, because a threat in Africa would definitely, definitely be a threat all over the world. A yes. continent of 1.2 billion people, 55 member states, cannot afford to see COVID-19 seed in, itself into the continent. Yeah, it risks variants popping up further. And as you point out, 
providing support here to Africa helps support the rest of the world too, and we all have to stand together. John, fantastic to have you with us. Come back soon, please, and to keep us updated of progress. The director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention there. Thank you once again. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, and we're seeing a pretty cautious start to the trading day. Rate-sensitive tech stops about turning once again. We're lower by two-tenths of 1%. All of this as global investors mark an important anniversary. One year ago today, global stocks bottomed out from the deep pandemic plunge, beginning the massive run-up that has continued pretty much uninterrupted since then. A lot of thanks, of course, to the Federal Reserve and its crucial do-whatever-it-takes approach to economic support. Fed Chair Jay Powell talks about the future of the pandemic aid before Congress later today. And, of course, Congress is spending too. The job so far not yet done, though. Brent and U.S. crude are sharply lower on concerns that stubbornly high COVID caseloads in many parts of the globe will continue to weigh on growth. We are off by just over 4%, as you can see. Now, despite the vaccine rollouts, hopes of overseas travel from continental Europe this summer seem more certain than ever in the U.K., a year to the day since its first national lockdown, it's illegal to take a foreign holiday. Tough new laws mean rule breakers face a $7,000 fine. Germany, meanwhile, is going into hard lockdown over Easter as infections there soar. And France, which is in the throes of a third wave, brought in new lockdown measures in 16 areas as of last Friday. All this spells more pain for holiday companies and airlines. We'll hear from Virgin Voyages later in the show. But first, John Defterius has been talking to Etihad and John joins us now. John, how optimistic are they about a resurgence in travel, at least once these lockdowns come to an end? Well, it's not going to happen overnight, uh, Julia, Um, but a pretty clear idea of where Etihad is going. You know, everybody's marking an anniversary, good or bad, right now. This is a a sector, as you know, that lost nearly $120 billion last year. Uh, And March 23rd, 2020 is when they had to shut down the fleet for Etihad. And from that point forward, uh, the CEO, Tony Douglas, uh, told me they wanted to set a standard for health protocols, which they think they have done here. Uh, There's a severe lockdown still in Abu Dhabi because of the quarantines that they have in place, but they're looking forward to the future. Uh, And in fact, he says the next major hurdle is getting a global travel pass here, something IATA is working on, but it has to include vaccines. And when can you get that rolled out? Let's take a listen to what his strategy is. We're assuming that it will be around for the foreseeable future. And we're assuming that the traveling public will need that level of confidence to the standards of how the cabins are presented, the air filtration, the elimination of touch points, the way in which Etihad was the only airline and still is in the world since last August, whereby you need to be 100% PCR tested at both point of origin and point of arrival. This is a country that has very high vaccination rates, some of the highest in the world as a matter of fact. What do you do in striking the balance for those who don't have access to vaccines, even into 2022, and and you want them to travel to avoid inequality? Um, You know, a year ago, let's face it, most of us weren't talking about PCR tests. A year ago, we certainly weren't talking much about vaccines. And now it's pretty much the norm as these things roll out. There will always be uh, countries that will be able to adapt and adopt more quickly. And the challenge will be, as you rightly say, to make sure that inequality doesn't become a handicapping part in getting the world back to normal. Would one have to have a vaccine or be vaccinated to travel, though? Is that the bottom line or is it the negative PCR that can still work? 
For us, we believe that vaccine and or an appropriate test will definitely be part of the future. And there's lots of ways now where people are looking at how that becomes certified with vaccine certificates, wellness passports. It's interesting because IATA has this travel pass that's developing the European Union, a green certificate. How long will it take to have a common global standard? Six months, perhaps longer, because people are eager to get back in the skies. It's our belief that the solution isn't perhaps quite as complicated as one would imagine. But how it gets globally adopted and adapted to is where the time-consuming challenge will be. For sure it will start in the coming months. It will probably take upwards of a year to roll out. But I do believe it will become part of the new norm. The trick to this now is for global leaders and the political uh, community to align on how this can be rolled out from a solution point of view, particularly vaccines all around the world. Is there pent-up demand right now? What are you seeing in terms of bookings for the summer months? Are people itching to go? Or where does it tie into the fact they need more security and that's where your wellness program comes into play for Etihad? It's going to go off like a fire hydrant. Hold that thought in your mind. There is so much pent-up demand. Every time a country comes on a green list, even if it's only for a relatively limited period of time, our booking curve goes through the roof. A fire hydrant, John. Now, there is some optimism. Yeah, I thought you'd I mean, like that. And also the requirement like for <laughs> sort of political alignment on travel. Good luck with that. But what is he talking about? Give us a timescale. Did he give it to you on a return to the kind of levels of travel that we were seeing pre-pandemic? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Tony talked about a sliding timescale, Julie. They were hoping for the start of 2023. He said, realistically, it's mid-2023, depending on those Mm. decisions by the government leaders he was making reference to, which I thought was uh, rather interesting. Uh, By the way, Etihad, and we see the same uh, sort of tactic here in Dubai, Uh, Etihad and Abu Dhabi has pushed forward this HOPE consortium, uh, which is the complete supply chain for vaccines uh, in this wider region, because this is a market of two billion consumers, right, if you go to South Asia and to Africa, particularly to the South, Tony Douglas was saying. So if they can get this out and get it pushed in to the marketplace, he said it'll be good for the travel sector, which is still expected to lose $40 billion this year. So very frank response, what it takes to get this travel pass going, making sure you deal with inequality and that uh, PCR still work, uh, but to get the political backing for this industry that needs that help. Yeah, global coordination, essential. John Defterius, thank you so much for that great interview. All right, coming up after the break, Virgin Voyages is hoping it's a case of second time lucky after last year's big launch was scrubbed. Well, you're welcome back on board if you've packed a vaccine certificate. Stay with us, that's next. Welcome back to First Move. You may remember last year we heard from Virgin Voyages who were hoping to launch adult-only cruises around the Med and the Caribbean. Well, that was postponed, of course, due to the pandemic. But after a series of coronavirus outbreaks on ships around the world, Virgin says it's confident adequate safety protocols are now in place for sailings to start in July. All passengers and crew need to be vaccinated and tested ahead of travel. New air purification systems have been installed and contact is minimised with crew members. 
Tom McAlpin is president and CEO of Virgin Voyages, and he joins us now. Tom, great to have you with us. No messing around on these voyages. If you've been vaccinated, you're welcome to join. If you haven't, you aren't. That's right. Um, you know, we spent the last year, we're launching a, a new brand and we wanted to launch it in a safe environment. So we put pushed the pause button, but we spent the last year really studying the virus and, and developing protocols that we think is the safest way to possibly travel. You mentioned some of them. It's about the cleaning protocols. It's about contactless uh, technology we have. And we've invested in air purification systems, atmosphere, which uses bipolar ionization to clean and, and kill 100% of the bacteria and viruses that are out there. Of course, we'll be testing um, and having testing protocols. We have the ability to test before, during, and after the voyage. And I think the game changer is requiring vaccines for all of our sailors and for all of our crew. The combination of those things, really, if you think about it, uh, is a highly controlled environment, and it creates a very, very safe way to travel, perhaps the safest way to travel. So literally no one on board that ship will be without a vaccine? That's right, That's a, that, that is our goal, absolutely. And how often will testing take place? Well, we're working through those final uh, protocols. We're working with CDC. Frankly, we think that CDC should lift the conditional sale order. We're waiting for them to lift that, that order so that we can begin operations uh, in July. Um, and again, developing all of these protocols creates this very, very safe or think about it. Everybody's tested before you get on board. Well, we may test during and we will probably test after uh, requiring a vaccine and then all of the, the, the procedures on board the ship creates a really a safe place. And frankly, that's what con consumers want. They want to feel safe about traveling. And, you know, we feel that we're, we're confident in doing that because we've developed a, a product for the adult market. And you heard from the president that all of the adults will be able to have a vaccine if readily available to all those who desire um, by May. So we're hoping to get back to uh, beginning the new normal in July. I may have been looking at what's available, actually, and I see that the birthday cruise includes visits to Key West and then the Bahamas. Again, you're going to be interacting if you're a passenger with people that haven't been vaccinated, if you step off board the ship. What's the protocol around that? And what happens on the off chance that you catch somebody who then has COVID? What happens with the rest of the passengers with quarantine? How are you going to handle that? Yeah, so we're working with all of our uh, shore providers to make sure that they have safety protocols in place that we could create this tight bubble. You know, we we look at uh, protecting our guests on board in the unlikely event that there was a, a case. You know, we have two doctors, three nurses. We have all the equipment on to, to be able to handle something like that. But it's kind of like a lifeboat trail, right? You prepare, you go through the lifeboat trail, the likelihood of ever needing that uh, is pretty remote. So we feel pretty confident about the processes and the policies that we put in place. What demand have you seen, Tom? Well, you know what? We, we've seen March has been uh, spectacular. Uh, bookings are our strongest month so far. Um, I think there's incredible pent-up demand for this industry. Um, Frankly, Americans love the cruise. Uh, it has it enjoys very high satisfaction rates, <laughs> uh, incredible satisfaction uh, for money. Um, and everybody I spoke to that's had that's gotten a vaccine is can't wait to travel. It's the number one thing that people missed in the last year. They missed going on. Sorry, I was just going to ask you whether you're having to discount tickets. Is this a cheaper well, you know holiday than it was pre-pandemic? Yes, I think, the, of course, you're going to see some some good prices, but we're, we're, we're about creating a whole new brand. So I'm less worried about the pricing right now. We want people to get out there and enjoy our experience. We've created this, this adult experience because 
parents need it. Parents have had a really tough year. They've been parent, they've been guardian, they've been school teacher and everything in between. We think parents need a vacation. And we have the, the fantastic way to do that. It's uh, We've got the most glamorous ships in the industry inspired by super yacht design. We've got dining that were restaurants that you know, six different restaurants you go to, 20 different eateries. These are restaurants that you want to go to on land. And you know, uh, entertainment that is much more immersive, a theater that changes configuration three times during the voyage. And the, the creme de la creme is the Virgin Voyages Beach Club at Bimini. And this is, I, I call it the sexiest beach club ever designed. It's these two <laughs> fantastic pools overlooking a plethora of palm trees, the Atlantic Ocean, programming that only Virgin can provide. So we're pretty excited and we, we, we tell people to come set sail the Virgin way. I know, it feels like a different world, quite frankly, the idea of going back on holidays and doing normal things. Um, what about verification of, of vaccine uh, recipients? Yes, yeah, so all of our, one of the all other of our sailors. Yeah. Yes, all, all of our sailors are required to produce some type of certification. You know, if you, if you get your vaccine, I've gotten mine, I've got a CDC certification card, which tells you the type of vaccine that you had and the dates that you've had it. So that will be required for all of our sailors before they get on board the ship. And you mentioned it, and I'll mention it very quickly. The CDC is still recommending against voyages. So all of this tied to the CDC relaxing its guidelines, of course. Yeah, we think it, you know it's a, it's a bit unfair. If you look at the rest of the industries, we're jealous of the industries. I mean, you've seen uh, all the other industries opening up, airlines, hotels, restaurants, theme parks, casinos are all open up for business, but yet we're not. So um, we're encouraging the CDC to lift that, that sale order so that we can begin operations in July. And that's what the American people want. Let's see. Tom, great to have you with us. Thank you. Tom McAlpine there, the president and CEO of Virgin Voyages. All right, coming up, Goldman Sachs boss responding to complaints from his junior analysts who say enough is enough. That story next. Welcome back to First Move. Saturday's off. That's one of the promises Goldman Sachs' CEO is making in response to junior bankers' complaints that went viral. A group of analysts detailed what they called inhumane conditions in a survey, including 95-hour working weeks. Claire Sebastian joins us now with more. Claire, I read this, and it also suggests they're going to hire more analysts. Uh, inhumane working conditions, 95-hour work weeks, and workplace abuse. Not the best PR advert for hiring new people. Talk us through what more Goldie's had to say. Yeah, so we've had a response now to this, which came out last week, Julia, from Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon. Uh, he came out in a voice memo to, to all staff over the weekend, weekends that he's, of course, now promising to protect uh, for junior staff. This is what he says he's going to do. He's going to step up enforcement uh, of, of what's called uh, the, the, the kind of free Saturday so that, that junior staff are not expected to work between 9 p.m. on Friday and 9 a.m. on Sunday. They also, as you know, are, are going to try and hire uh, more junior bankers. They're going to try and move people into the busier areas of the bank because, of course, this has been a hugely busy time uh, for Goldman. The stock is up some 150% uh, over the past year. They're seeing record volumes in investment banking. They're, they just posted their best revenue uh, in trading in, in a decade. So a hugely busy time uh, for the bank. But I want to read you one quote from, from the transcript of this voice memo from David Solomon because I think 
it's safe to say this isn't going to change absolutely everything. He's not suddenly promising that this is going to be an easy ride, Virginia Bankers. He says, just remember, if we all go an extra mile for our clients, even when we feel that we're reaching our limit, it can really make a difference in our performance. So he's still trying to motivate his staff uh, to keep pushing, to keep working those long hours. But there are concessions now. For lifestyle after this uh, this this survey from these analysts. I know it's quite funny. I mean, there were 13 people in this survey, and I've just Googled. They've got 40,500 employees, and the exponential curve of conditions and pay, quite frankly, makes a lot of people I know and have known over the years say, "You suck it up for those years, and you get on with it." But um, incentivizing people to join, they're not the only ones that are offering perks of potentially joining. Claire, talk us through Jeffries as one specific example of giving gifts to employees. Yeah, there seems to be a bit of momentum now <laughs> on Wall Street, Julia. I think this is a moment that the pandemic has obviously been very hard on everyone and working from home, something David Solomon from Goldman Sachs once referred to as an aberration has has sort of compounded matters. Jeffries, uh, a Wall Street firm, has just said that they are offering employees one of several free gifts, one of which is a Peloton bike. Uh, the uh-huh. company saying they will try to make sure that they have time to use it <laughs> uh, as well. So that is that is one way of incentivizing people. And we have also heard from Citigroup CEO Jane Fraser saying that she is introducing something called Zoom Free Fridays. We know that Zoom fatigue has been a big problem for people. She's also introducing a, uh, a, a, a company-wide holiday on May 28th so people can reset. She's trying to set an example by taking some vacation uh, herself and trying to stop people from scheduling calls outside normal working hours. So look, I think there'll be some skepticism among Wall Street veterans. You, as someone who's worked on Wall Street, may feel this too, that, that, that this is something we've seen before, a kind of reset in the culture. But certainly this is a moment where it's happening. I no longer work there. There's a reason. <laughs> Claire, <laughs> thank you so much for um, bringing us up to speed with that. And great to have yeah. a Peloton. You just need that Saturday off, of course, to mm-hmm. actually use it. Yeah. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and my Instagram pages. Search for at jchatterleycnn. In the meantime, and as always, stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next, and I'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.